Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute. Didn't we just read in chapter 10? From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. Isn't that verse 5 of, of chapter 10? And doesn't the very same chapter, the last verse in chapter 10, ten say the very same thing about these men, that these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations, and that from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood? And then here, now, in verse 1 of chapter 11, we're told that the whole earth had the same language and words. So what gives? Well, chapter 10 is commonly called the table of nations. The genealogy that is given there is different than the genealogy that is given in chapter 5. And it's different compared to the other genealogies that follow this one. And the difference is, is that the men that are listed in that genealogy are all men who the nations of the world came from. So why is that important? And why did chapter 10 precede chapter 11? But the events in chapter 10 either don't line up with chapter 11 or they happen before what happened in chapter 11. Again, this is why keeping at the forefront of your mind the truth that this book, while given to men and even penned by men, is not about man. It's not a human book about humanity. This book is about God. Because there is a God. Do you know this to be true? Do you believe this as truth? Because the four men that stood on that green hillside on the day that God spoke to them, the only four men who were alive at that time on that planet, they believed in God. They had heard him speak. They saw him act. They received his covenant. And they could witness with their own eyes the sign of that covenant that he gave every time it rained. They knew there is a God. A God that is sovereign over all men and nations that are listed in chapter 10. The God who, after blessing Noah and his sons, gave them this command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They heard this command. They understood this command. They were able to comprehend the meaning and the intent behind that command. And instead, they acted in an insane manner. See, the definition of insanity has been said to be doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. An insane person would go on a very expensive vacation right after losing their job and everything that they own. An insane person seems to not be able to think logically or clearly, to not be able to act or interact properly in social settings. Insanity is exhibiting very foolish or senseless behavior. And these men 
acted insanely. Again, the men who were listed in chapter 10, the men who were listed in this chapter, they all came from those four men who came out of that wood boat after witnessing firsthand the complete and utter annihilation of all men and everything that had the breath of life in them. A just judgment by their creator for their sin against him. And these men were insane. Instead of obeying the God who had demonstrated to them that he is the author and creator of all things, instead of obeying the simple command to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, they acted insanely by doing this, verses 2 through 4. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come. Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, if you've ever watched a so-called beauty pageant, you know that every contestant, when they're being asked those the questions, they, they ask them, what is it that you desire most in life? And the answer that they always give, world peace. World peace, that was the intent of the coming together of all those various artists singing, we are the world. World peace is the intent of the globalization of the nations that we're seeing happening today. Because war is disruptive on economies. And we all just need to learn to get along. There was no war that we're told of during this time. The people, they all seemed to be just getting along with each other. And really, isn't that the most important thing in life? But did you notice that in the, first, the telling of the first 1,600 years of human life, before the flood, there isn't much telling of war and conflict. We know that there was murders happening because of Cain and Abel, and later because of Lamech when he killed that man for wounding him. But we're never told that there are full-out wars happening. People just seem to get along better in those days. And in these opening verses, it seems, at least on the surface level, surface level that what was happening here is what exactly what we all desire. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. There was a building boom happening. The economy, it was going gangbusters. The people had gotten together, united under the banner of mankind. They were all working in unity toward a single goal, the betterment of man. Isn't that a good thing? Life was getting easier. There were these new modern achievements being discovered all the time. New advances on the home front. Modern conveniences that seemed hard to live without. It was a good time to be alive. Man had gone out and they had found a perfect building site in which they could gather. And soon afterwards, they started working together to build better living accommodations for themselves. 
And the city, the city that they built, it was big. It was bold. It was beautiful. And the human mind set in motion with the best of humanity all working towards a single goal. They figured out how to build structures that could reach high into the sky. Without the interference of war and separation, all the greatness of the human mind and the exertions of our strength could be used for good. It was beautiful. It was heaven on earth. Verses 2 through 4 imply that these people had all things in common, that they were living communally, that the full number were of one heart and soul, that no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There wasn't needy people among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And the proposal to come together to build a city and a tower was a communal project. These people all seemed to be equals. They all seemed to be working for the betterment of people. There were no super rich, and there were no super poor. The common language they shared was working together. Was working together with the inherent goodness of mankind. And the city that they were building, the tower that they were building, it was a glorious monument that celebrated man. And really, isn't this the thing that we are all striving after now? Really, isn't this the best thing for humanity? Sure. If this was our world. Sure, if there was no God, if there had never been commands given, covenants made, but this is not reality, this is not our world. There is a God, and he has given us commands, and he has made covenants with his creation. The actions of these people were insane. And the fact that we don't understand exactly why this is all wrong. That we don't understand that these, these were the actions that prove the truth as told to us in Genesis 6-5. That the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that the ver every intention of their thoughts was evil continually. That we don't see these actions as that truth. That truth the same truth that God said after the flood, when there were only eight humans left on the earth, then God said the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. We don't see compliance instead of obedience as sin. Eh, maybe it's a sin, but it's just a small s sin not really a sin. It's not like murder or rape. And for this reason, we don't understand why the building of the city and the tower was such an egregious sin. Nor do we see the actions of these people as being insanity. Of Noah, it had been said that he obeyed God in all that was commanded him in Genesis 7.22. And for that reason, that ark 
saved the lives of his family and all those on board. And our culture today has gotten to the point that truth is now deemed very offensive. On every government school campus, you have to be careful about telling the truth. Otherwise, you're going to be censored, you will be fired, and you will be expelled. Truths such as calling a man a man, like holding that there are only two genders, that there's only one race, that abortion is murder, that there's only one way to the Father. A man nowadays can be a woman simply because he says so. And you, you are forced to act like this is truth. The world has gone insane. But that's not the truth in the church, right? We're not so easily offended. I mean, we stand for truth. We stand on truth. After we all, we have this Bible. And the Bible says that the word is truth. And within this word, we're told, has Yahweh as great delight in burnt offerings as sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams, 1 Samuel 15, 22. Most of us have heard that verse before. Most of us know that we're told, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me, John 14, 23 and 24. We might know that verse. We know, and we've been told, do not be doers, I'm sorry, but be doers of the word, not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves, James 1.22. We know those verses. And we would, might even recognize these verses from 1 John. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit who he has given to us, 1 John 3.24. And for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, 1 John 5.3. We speak truth here, right? Then why is it so hard to talk about obedience? Why is it offensive to talk openly about obedience? To stress obedience? We, we, we should know the importance of obedience. But do we really understand the difference between compliance and obedience? A great example of the difference can be found in Ephesians 6.1, where we're told, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. We all know that verse, right? We even think that we teach and obey this verse. And yet, how often have you heard a parent tell their child to obey and then count to three? Or give the same command four or more times before the child does it. And when that child finally does that which they've been told three or four times to do, it kind of does it anyway. When they finally do it, we think, we say, that child has obeyed. They have not. They have complied. And this 
when they do that, this is deemed good parenting, acceptable parenting, outside of the church and even in the church. We would all say that these parents, they're just trying to obey God in training up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And if pressed, we might admit that they're not really doing that since their children really aren't obeying. They're merely complying. But we would also agree that's not sin on the parent's part. It's a parenting choice. And we really can't talk about that because it's much too personal. The reality is that even within the church, talk about obedience is offensive. We are no less insane than the atheistic world. Perhaps we are more insane than them. We read this account and we're quick to dismiss the lack of obedience in the building of this city. We are confused as to why it's such a big deal. We think that the thing that God got mad about was the building of that tower. We think that these people were actually building a tower that was going to reach God. And the reason for this is because obedience is offensive to us. We don't like being told what to do. Not really. And you're sitting here thinking, that's not the case. But when push comes to shove, when our blind spots are revealed to us, man, our backs will get up. That once very sweet and saintly saint in that pew, they become very hostile and very angry. See, obedience in the things that you agree with with the laws that you can easily get behind, those are easy. And that's compliance. It's the law that you don't agree with, the one that you don't like. When you do that one, when you submit to that, that's where obedience is seen. And that is where the difference between compliance and obedience is found. And this is the same truth for children. Even disobedient children will obey commands. You tell that disobedient child, that spoiled child, you tell them, you must indulge yourself. Oh, they're going to obey. Obedience and the things that they like, that they agree with, those are easy for them to do. But those things that they don't agree with, those things that they don't like, these are the things that the parents have to start counting to three or 10 about. But that's not you. That's not me, right? Well, verses 1 through 4 are given us to reveal how after mankind, after being blessed by God, being told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, how they obeyed. They kind of obeyed. They did most of what God commanded them. I mean, they married, had kids, they multiplied. And really, isn't that good enough? I mean, what's the harm in staying together and building community? Verses 1 through 4 are not a misunderstanding on their part of these people. And they're not an oversight on the part of God and the command that he gave to them, that he, a command that he's now going to have to come back and course correct. 
Verses 1 through 4 are the telling of the reality of that which God had said concerning man in both Genesis 6-5 and Genesis 8-21. And we don't understand that this was a sin. This was the sin that was so egregious that God destroyed the entire world because of it. And proof of that is given to us in verses 5 and 6. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they ha- all have one language, and this is the only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they will propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, it's really easy to read these verses and to think longly about them. It's easy to picture in our head that God came down to get a closer look, that he must have been at his desk working hadn't paid close enough attention to what was going on down at earth. And then he looked up, and all of a sudden there's a tower sitting there in his midst going, whoa, how'd that get there? It may be easy to think this way, but this isn't the case. In verse 4, the people said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And these achievements of man were for the betterment of man, for the praise and the acclaim of man. In verse 4, they said, let us build the heaven. They built within this great city a great tower. The best and the brightest of men got together. The strongest of mankind were working in unison. It was as as if Russia, China, England, the United States were all united in a common goal. And they were very proud of their accomplishments. And then we are told that God came down. And verse 5 is a, com- uh, is a commentary on the anthropomorphic language that's used there of God coming down. Man, in all of our unity, decided for the praise and acclaim of mankind to build a city and a tower. A great achievement that would demonstrate our greatness. And it was so great, so amazing, so wonderful in its majesty that God had to come down to look at it. It was that small, that insignificant. It's like that Lego tower that a three-year-old makes that they're so proud of themselves for and for which you as a parent, you have to get down on the ground to really look at it. And just like this tower was evil, If you've ever stepped on one of those Lego building blocks, you know that they're evil as well. And God God thought so little of the achievements of man that when he stepped down, he did so to see what the children of man had built. You see, we elevate men. We elevate ourselves. We elevate our achievements. Even name our churches elevation. And these things are all so small, so insignificant, that God has to step down to look at the best of our works. And to him, the best and the brightest of men are mere children. But you're thinking, but God did step down. And isn't the fact that he said nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them, doesn't that prove that we humans can thwart God's plan? That we really don't need God? No. What it proves is how awesome God is. 
the only reason that we can build, that we can create, that we can even reason or dream is because we have been created in the image of God. And no, that doesn't mean that we are created with the same stuff that God is. We are created in his image, after his likeness. We have been given some of his attributes, some of the same capabilities to a small, limited degree. And one of them is to create. And there are two major differences. The first is that we are alienated from God by our sin. Every part of us has been tainted in it including and perhaps to the greatest extent our minds, which is why we may build, we may create, we may discover, but everything that we do, everything that we build and create, none of it is good. We can't do good. Not outside of God. And the second major difference is every time we do anything, any time we ever create, we are forced to use his building blocks to create anything at all. And then we pat ourselves on the back, crow like a rooster over our achievements, and once again demonstrate our insanity. So what are we to make of this statement by God concerning nothing would be impossible for man? Once again, this all points back to the amazing grace of God in creating a being in his image, And God created us for a single purpose. And the purpose for all these created in the image of God beings at that moment, the purpose for them at that moment was for them to come together. United in a common goal of peace on earth, goodwill towards man, and to to elevate the created. And then we have verses 7 through 9 that prove that this was the case. Come. Let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there was the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. There is a God. These humans knew it. Four of them firsthand. Most of the ones that were building this city had either second or third hand knowledge that this was truth. But really, every one of them knew it every time it rained. And yet, they complied and did not obey. They figured that if they stuck together, that they could overthrow God. United we stand. And you may be thinking that I'm taking liberty with this text, that this text doesn't say that they were trying to enact a hostile takeover of heaven, that they weren't trying to overthrow God. They just wanted a better life, an easier life, a more comfortable life. So God just confused their language. Can you comprehend the difference now between the created and the creator? The created can do nothing, can affect no change on the creator. But the creator... He, just because he decides that he wants to, he can and does alter the very fabric of the brains of every human that was alive. God, in stepping down and looking at this silly little city, 
and their tower that these children had, of men had made. He didn't have to do much to demonstrate to them that no matter how insane they were, no matter how superior they thought that they were, no matter how great they thought their intellect was, all he had to do is just decide one in his mind, just decide that I'm going to change one thing in their minds and in doing so demonstrate to them how insane they really are. And this is how much different, how much superior and how much other than God is. God knows best. But you may be sitting there thinking, I don't think he does. You may be thinking that after the confusion of mankind, after the changing of all the languages, it's after this that we start reading about man enslaving other men, alliances being developed, kingdoms raising up against other kingdoms. It seems like man was doing pretty good when we all had the same language. And since after the confusing of the languages, mankind has been separate, has been hostile, has been murderous. It seems like God is the author of sin after all. That is, if you're insane. We don't understand the meaning of Genesis 1.1. We don't understand why God created instead of not creating, why he made man in his image, why he allowed sin to enter into his realm. We don't understand why Genesis 9 gives us verses 4 through 8, the account of Noah and his sin, why Noah says what he does about his three sons, and then why directly after that we are given the genealogy of the table of nations, and then why directly after that table we are given the account of this, of this city Babel, the telling of the confusion of the languages. And then, right after that, we are once again given a repeat of the genealogy of Shem in verses 10 through 26. Did you realize that there's a differences in these, be these genealogies, though? A difference when compared to that of chapter 10? Here, there's ages assigned to each one of these men. As to how long they lived, and how old they were when the next man in the genealogy was born. And there's also a significant variance that happens in our genealogy compared to that of chapter 10. They both start the same. Here are verses 10 through 18 from chapter 11. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old when he fathered Arkpashad, who two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arkpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arkpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arkpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ruah. And then here, here's those corresponding verses from chapter 10. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arkpachshad, Lud, Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arkpachshad fathered Shelah. Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided and his brother's name was Jochten verses 22 through 25 of chapter 10. And from there on, the lineage from chapter 10 is different from the lineage here in chapter 11. 
To Eber was born Peleg, and in his days the earth was divided. There, there is when the Lord came down to confuse the languages of man. Here is when he said, enough of the compliance of man. Many people think that the account of the, the sin of Noah and getting drunk and naked happened soon after the disembarkment from the ark. But that thinking is flawed. The truth that Noah pronounced after seeing what his son Ham had done to him was to say that his young, the youngest son of Ham, Canaan, was cursed. We don't know how old Ham was when his youngest son was born, but if his genealogy is anything like that of Shem, then Canaan was born a hundred years after the flood. And when we come to chapter 11, we can once again think in a lineal way concerning the events as they're told to us here. And think that the incident at the Tower of Babel happened, happened hundreds, if not thousands of years before the birth of Abraham, Abram. And this thinking would be wrong as well. If you remember back in chapter 5, when the first genealogy was given, that started with Adam and moved forward until it got to Noah, we learned that Lamech, Noah's dad, actually knew Adam. He knew the creation account, the naming of the animals, the serpent, the curse, the covenant promise. All these things were told firsthand by Adam to Lamech, who could have then directly told them to Noah as well. And because we have these ages being given to us in this genealogy today, we can know that the tower incident happened less than 100 years after the flood. Noah was still alive. So was his sons. In fact, Noah died two years before Abraham was born. And his son, Seth, Seth died about the same time that Abram did. These men, remember, these men knew that there was a God. He wasn't something that they just thought that they knew. He commanded Noah to build the ark warning him of this coming destruction. He commanded Noah and his sons to enter the ark. They knew that it was him that shut them in, that it was him who commanded them to leave the ark. It was him who spoke in the covenant promise to them and then given them the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And this is the insanity of man and the reality of man as well. As John Calvin said, our hearts are an idol factory, churning out idols to worship instead of the one and true living God as fast as we possibly can. And this truth helps us to understand another reason that we have verses 19 through 26. And, and Peleg lived after he fathered Ruah 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ruah had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag, and Ruah lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So we can look at this list of men and very easily assume that it must have been a thousand years between Noah and Abram. 
A thousand years from the world's population beginning at eight and the city of Babel being built and the confusion of the languages and idolatry that was rampant when Abraham lived. And that thinking would be wrong. Abram was born 140 years after leaving the ark. Think about that. 140 years after leaving the ark. Many of the patriarchs that came before Abram, they were contemporaries of him. In fact, his grandfather or great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather, Eber, he died after Abraham died. And by the time Abram was born, man was worshiping gods made in his image, gods made in the image of the created realm, gods of pleasure, gods that could not flood the world, that could not make covenants with them, gods that could not create the rainbow. And then this chapter ends by drilling down on the family of Terah, verses 27 through 32. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham took Nahor for wives, took wives, I'm sorry. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, <coughs> the father of Milcah, and Sarah. Now Sarai was barren, and she had no children. Terah took Abram and his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son's Abraham's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now Ur of the Chaldeans is in modern-day Iraq. It was a culture at that time that had a pantheon of gods, most prominent was Marduk, the moon god. And this was the family that Abraham came out of. His lineage, while preserved in this Bible, should never be thought of as being Christian. True worshipers of the one and true God. They were more than likely like the rest of humanity at that time. Perhaps moral, maybe kind, maybe even religious, but most definitely pagan. But not all mankind was pagan at that time. You see, about this same time, there was a man in the land of Uz named Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East, Job 1, 1 through 3. And in this Canaanite land, there was a city where God was worshipped, a city called Salem. And that city was ruled by a priest of the God Most High, a man named Melchizedek, king of Salem. So why the account of Babel in the history of God? What are we supposed to learn from all of this? We are supposed to be amazed. First, we should be amazed at the God 
that would covenant with this creation to never destroy it again by flood. Be amazed at the God who would be gracious to mankind throughout this period. Be amazed at the total depravity of man who outside of the divine intervention of God will utterly reject truth and will worship self over God. And we are supposed to understand that the confusion of the language of the people was for the glory of God. We must understand what God meant when he said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. We need to understand that this, when he said this, we think when he said this that he was thinking that man could achieve world peace, unity, ease of life, that man might discover the cure for cancer and even death. We don't see the confusion of their languages as the grace of God towards humanity. You see, God knew that there will come a time, and perhaps we are living in that time, where God will loosen the restraints that he has placed over evil within man and in the heavenly realm. And at that time, Man will come all together as a single unit under the authority and governance of one man. We already have one language. It's ones and zeros. And we are all moving towards a united, single government structure where mankind can flourish. And when that happens, then the reality of what those bricks and what that city and that tower, what they represented will finally become apparent. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to chapter 13 of the book of Revelation. And there we finally see man coming together. Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its, on its horns and blasphemous names, blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion. And to it the dragon gave his power and, and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but his mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth, the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. They followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he has given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth utterly haughty, and blast, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. This is the unity, unity of man. This is what mankind wants. And it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And also was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. 
and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb of uh, in the book of the Lamb who was slain. We need to understand that outside of God, changing our hearts, this is us. We're not good. We're not wise. We're just like the rest of those people making those bricks. And God knows that. That's why he says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. And then here is the truth of election, predestination. If anyone is to be taken captive, to, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, to the sworn, the sword must he be slain. And here is the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Saints, we need to have a biblical understanding of the Bible and the God that is told to us here. He is gracious, he is kind, he is merciful, he is just. And outside of him, we are none of these things. We are given this chapter, chapter 11, for us to understand that left to our own devices, we will individually and corporately, we will, within a very short amount of time, give ourselves over to sin, to idol worship. And we must realize, saints, this is the culture that Job lived in, the culture that Melchizedek lived in, that Abram lived in. And this is the culture that the saints at the end of the age live in. And all these saints obeyed God. It was the hallmark of their life. It is the hallmark of every saint's life. And we need to submit to God willingly. We need to open our life up to the radiant truth of his word and then submit to where our lives don't line up with it. You see, the church, the people of God will be in the tribulation people or in the tribulation period. And we will be there as a witness, just as Job was a witness, just as Melchizedek was a witness, just as Abraham was a witness. A witness to the reality of God and the insanity of man. And the world will hate us because we are of God. And they will persecute the people of God, relentlessly hunting us down to kill us. All the while basking in the one world system, in the comfort that is provided for them, in the technological advances that continue to enthrall them in their insanity, all because they hate God. And this truth is the backstory behind the accounts of chapter 11 of Genesis. The God of creation revealing the truth of who he is, the truth of who man is, and the only hope for his creations, for his creation. And saints, if you are a saint, 
obey. Don't be deluded into thinking that compliance is okay. Good enough. Understand that in this time of ease, if you are not willing to be obedient now, you are not going to be obedient and willing to submit when things get rough. And this is why we must train ourselves for godliness as told to us in 1 Timothy 4.17. Obedience isn't easy. It doesn't come naturally. But saints, it is necessary. Obedience is the proof of belonging. As we've seen in the life of Noah, as we will see in the life of Abraham, and when you obey, know that in doing so, that you are proving whose you are, not who you are. And know that in obeying, when you obey, you are bringing glory to the God that the rest of humanity says in their insanity doesn't exist. Let's pray.